You can be seated. Thank you, worship team. Yeah, you should give him a round of applause. Joe, thank you very much. That was awesome, as always. Give a round of applause for Joe and the, and the team. I really appreciate that, you guys. Thank you very much. Uh, well, we are going to be in Exodus 34. We're continuing on the path through Exodus uh, this week and, and is the way forward. And before I get started, I heard this little joke uh, that a pastor that I like to listen to said. It's very short. Um, and some of you may laugh at it, some of you may not, but that's okay. Um, and basically he said, you know, I've never been kidnapped, but I haven't been in a group text before. <laughs> okay, not bad, right? How many of you have been in that group text? You just can't get rid of it fast enough, right? Yeah, okay. Um, we are going to be in Exodus 34, but before we get to Exodus 34, I, I do want to take some time. Pastor Danny spoke on Exodus 33 last week. He did a wonderful job, and I want to highlight a couple of things that he mentioned because I really believe it ties into the first nine or so verses in Exodus chapter 34, and I want to call a couple of things out as we do that. So we're going to read a chunk of scripture at the beginning, and then I'll kind of give you where I believe God has taken us throughout the passages. Amen? So we'll start in uh, Exodus chapter 33. We're going to read verse 12 and, and continue on through 34, verse 9. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you. And that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Verse 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, then do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablet which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him 
and proclaimed, excuse me, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. It's an interesting passage of scripture that, that, I, that I read this morning, and I wanted to just touch base on why I wanted to go back to chapter 33 a little bit. In chapter 33, where we pick up, Moses is pleading with God to spare the people that have already sinned and, and done a several things that have made God fairly angry, coming off the gold calf and everything that, that is associated with it. And what's interesting about that passage of Scripture is that as Moses pleads with him, if you go back even to the very first verse in chapter 33, God is really mad at the children of Israel. And so he says to Moses, depart, go, and take these people that you brought out of Egypt with you. I want you to think about that sentence for a minute. Because as I was reading verses 12, what is Moses doing? Moses isn't saying, these are the people I'm bringing, I brought out God. Moses starts to tell him, hey, wait a minute. God, these are your people. You told me to bring these people out. And then several times in verse 13, 14, to 15, he says, your people and I. Because both Moses and God are like, hey, go with these people. No, 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 you take them. You brought them here, right? It's like this back and forth push. Everybody's like, hey, I don't want anything to do with those people right now. They're not in good graces. Because in verses in 33 and 32, what God says, what? Let me come before them so I can consume them all. So neither one of them are really fond of, of, of continuing on the process with the people. But what I find interesting about it is this, is that as Moses begins to uh, plead with God and, and give him all the reasons why he should allow them to be his people again and continue to, to fulfill the promises, is that Moses says what? I, I need your presence, God. If we're going to go, you have to come with us. Because if you don't, then we're not going. And, and if we don't find favor in your sight and everybody in the rest of the world knows that we haven't found favor or forgiveness, what's going to happen? How are they going to know that we're your people? God, remember you said, and he says, you, these are my people. These is, this is my nation. So he begins to remind God of things that God had already said and spoken to. So as we get into verse 1, you have Moses who's having a conversation with, with God again. Which, by the way, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really jealous about Moses. I mean, how many of you would love to have a conversation with God like that? Where you talk, and he actually responds in a way where it's like back and forth, not pray, hear, wait, I think, maybe, maybe it was the pizza, maybe it was something else. But in the middle of it, it's like, okay, God, you know, I just don't think this is the right idea. Well, why don't you think that way, Scott? Well, I don't know. I just, it's like, wouldn't you just love to have that back and forth? Why is it that Moses in the Old Testament, when there's no Holy Spirit, has a conversation with God that we should be able to have with God now? There's something there about Moses' desire and how he served God and how he pursued God and how he went forward. But as he's talking to him, God says to him, the Lord says to him, he says, hey, Moses, cut out two tablets just like the first ones, right? 
And so what does Moses say? Okay, I'll, I'll cut out the two tablets, God, no problem. What's interesting about it is if you take a look, and it, it, there, I don't think there's any major implications to this, but, you know, the first set of the, of the Ten Commandments, God provided the tablets, and God wrote on them. On the second set, he tells Moses, okay, Moses, you're pleading with me for their forgiveness. You're pleading with me to pardon them. You got some skin in the game. You've been asking God, me to be gracious to them. So cut out some tablets for me. And this time, I'll write the law on your tablets. And, and, and God, what? God pulls Moses into the ministry, kind of, right? It kind of begins to use Moses. Now, Moses has already been used by God throughout the whole chapter. But it's like he just continues to give Moses more opportunity to serve and show that God is with him. So he, he makes the tablets, and he does exactly what God asks him to do. He goes up, and he presents himself to God up at, at the top of Mount Sinai around verse 4. And as he presents himself to, to, to God, you know, you got to wonder what the, what the people, the children of Israel downstairs are thinking, right? Hey, the last time he went up there, it didn't take very long, and we started doing things that we shouldn't do. Maybe we should be on watch, right? We should make sure that we're not doing anything stupid. Nobody's going to do what they did before. So it's like, it's interesting that God uses the exact same scenario to see how they're going to respond. They know they responded poorly the first time, but now he wants to see how they're going to respond the second time. So he presents them. I also like the fact that it says in verse 4, he went early in the morning. You know, there's something wonderful about being up before the sun gets up. There's something wonderful about this nobody else about, right? Where you spend time with the Lord. Where you, you find yourself reading and, and just having time with him where there's no noise. The, the earth seems quiet in the morning, right? All the distractions that normally come at you while you're, if you're trying to do it at, at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 5, whatever. It seems like if you take that time in the morning, it sets you up for your day. And I think that Moses is like, hey, I'm getting out of camp before everybody else is up. And I'm going to go up and see God because, number one, he, call, he told me to come up in the morning. But number two, I can't wait to experience him like I did the last time he did the Ten Commandments. You see, Moses continues to show a hunger and a desire for more and more and more of God. And in some of the scriptures that we're going to read, you're going to see, man, that should have been enough for Moses. Like, okay, God, I'm good until I get to heaven. But that's not good enough for Moses. And that's, that's what I love about Moses as we, read, as we read through it. We're going to start off now in verse, in verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5. And as we go through this particular passage, and I'm going to read it again real quickly, I, I want you to think about well, let me read it first. Exodus 34, verse 5. It says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands of generations, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When, when Moses asks God in chapter 33 to show him his presence, he says, okay, I will, but you can't see my face. And the, we all know the story of the cleft in the rock and God hides it with his hand. And as, and as, as God is passing by, it says, what? Well, first off, the, 
the Lord descends in the cloud and stands there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then it says again, for a second time, it says that as the Lord passed before him, he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. As we begin to look at the name and how God is revealing himself, because when it says that he proclaimed the name of the Lord, he's really speaking about his character, his attributes, who God is. He's telling Moses, look, you can't see me, but I'm going to declare to you who I am. I'm going to reveal the heart of God. I'm going to reveal who I am on the inside. I'm going to reveal my attributes, my characteristics, my, my, my ability to be who I am. You're going to know me, Moses, by what I declare, by what I speak. So as Moses listens, the first thing that he says, it says, he passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Now that term there, and, and I am not an expert in all this, so I'm just going to give you flat out what I know, and then you can go research and do more of that if you want. But that word Lord there is, can be translated, or excuse me, yeah, that word God, I'm, excuse me, I am the Lord, the Lord God. It could be pronounced Jehovah, Jehovah El, or Yahweh, Yahweh El, right? Those are the different pronunciations you could have for that. And and when it's talking about that, it's talking about the Lord, and, and it says, which is the Lord God, and this is the Lord, the strong God, and the origin of all power, Jehovah El. So as he proclaims his name, he reveals who he is. And what that word means in terms of, of, of Jehovah is the self-existent God, the existing one. And when he says that, he's basically saying what? That that this is the all-knowing God, the omniscient, the omniscient God. He is the all-powerful God, the omnipotent God. He is perfect. He is the all-present God, the omnipresent God. And he's showing Moses, Moses, these are my attributes. This is who I am. And, and as you look at that translation from the Lord, it's all capital L-O-R-D, and it can say Yahweh or Jehovah, when you get to the word Yahweh, there's only consonants. There's no vowels in there, right? And the reason there is is because you weren't even allowed to say that name in the Old Testament. In fact, before they would write it, they would take a shower, wash their hands, get cleaned up, and write it once. When they had to write it again, they had to go take a shower, wash their hands, and do it again. Every time that word was, was written. What's interesting about it is you can, a lot of the people, I forget what it's called, I apologize, but just the consonants, they're able to uh, decipher it one way or another. Some have a, a definition or they've defined it, it says, not just the self-existent God or the existing one, but the all-becoming God. And what I like about that is it says, a God who can become whatever you need based on your circumstance. Are you struggling with fear? He becomes the what? The God of peace. Are you struggling with, with, you need strength in your life? He becomes the strong God. Are you anxious? He becomes the God of, of peace or of shalom. It, it says, if you uh, struggle with, let me see here. I apologize. You need healing? He becomes your healer. You need salvation? He becomes your savior. But he becomes what you need in your circumstance when you need it. Now, we're not talking about a genie in a bottle where I want a mansion, he becomes the God that's going to give me a mansion, right? What we're talking about is biblically speaking, that when you have a need in your life, that he becomes to you exactly what you need at that moment in time. How many people have experienced that before? Right? Is, is it true or not? It is. Absolutely it is. I love that, that meaning because it, it takes us to a different place as we keep reading. So we talk about the fact that he is, he is the 
um, <clears throat> he is Jehovah El. He is the Lord God, the strong God. But then he says the next thing that he mentions in verse 6 is he says this. He is the Lord, the Lord God. He is merciful. That he is a merciful God. He is full of mercy, it says. What is mercy? Mercy means not getting what you deserve. Right? Mercy means, you know, you do something terribly wrong and you find yourself in front of a judge and the judge pardons you and you go free. Completely free. Mercy is getting what we don't deserve. And the best example of that is what? Is that when, it take, when you take a look at who we are, is that we understand that for us, mercy means that because of our sin, we don't go to hell. We don't get what we deserve. As Christians, we receive Christ into our life and we don't go to hell. We don't have to experience eternal death or eternal damnation. What we should be getting is death. What we should be getting is eternal life in hell, right? Because that's what we've earned. You see, mercy is getting what we don't deserve, which is grace. I mean, excuse me, mercy is not getting what we deserve. I apologize. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Psalm 103 says this, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Psalm 51 is David, and he's crying out. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You see, David knew that what he had done deserved punishment, and there was consequences. And here's the thing. You, you, when you talk about mercy and talk about salvation, we're not getting what we deserve. Another example of that that I thought was interesting is that as the woman that's caught in adultery, that they bring her out, right? And as they bring her out, the law was that she deserves to be put to death because of what they caught her in. And what happens? God talks to all of them and he says, hey, so-and-so, what about you? Do you have any sins in your life? The first one with no sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And one by one, it says they all disappeared until there was no one left to condemn her. And Christ says the same thing. He's, he gave her mercy. He gave her mercy. She did not get what she deserved, the punishment that we deserved or earned for our actions. The second term that he uses to talk about the name of God is gracious. That he is a God of grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Right? Grace is getting what we don't deserve or, ne or we could never earn. It's unmerited favor. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man shall boast. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When it comes to grace, we get what we don't deserve. We get entrance into heaven. Mercy, we don't get judgment sending us to hell. Grace, we get heaven, which is what we cannot earn. It is the reality of those two things that are the first things that he mentions in the Old Testament. And what I find interesting about it is we're talking about grace and mercy, but we're also talking about the Ten Commandments and the law. So when God presents himself and says, you know what, Moses, I'm going to show you who I am, He's talking about a completely different picture than the, the, the God of the Old Testament. Because the God of the Old Testament is all justice and law. And yet he's coming right out and saying, hey, I'm not going to show you who I am, but I'm going to declare to you who I am. 
I'm going to declare who I really truly am. So this is the picture of what God is giving us. And it's interesting that, in the, like I said, in the middle of giving the law, he's talking about mercy and grace. That's the trueness of God's heart. We do not deserve heaven. We do not deserve all the blessings that we have in our life. We do not deserve the fact that God has given us a family, that God has given us a spouse that loves us, that we have children that love us. We, God has not, all, all the blessings in terms of our health or in terms of friendships or this church, all the times that God has provided for you when you needed it desperately, all the blessings of God, we don't deserve them. We can't earn them. He gives them to us regardless. The third thing that he calls himself is long-suffering. Long-suffering is the quality of self-restraint that when provoked, one does not immediately retaliate or punish. It is the opposite of anger. You see, God waits for us so that he can exercise mercy and grace to us. He's long-suffering. One of the examples they give is, is Noah. That as Noah was building an ark, it says that there was divine long-suffering, that he waited 120 years or whatever it took for Moses to build the ark, hoping that somebody would repent and come back to Christ. He delayed destruction. God is long-suffering. I always looked at him, and I felt like God was kind of long-suffering with Peter, right? right? He denies him three times. He chops off the guy's ear. He, I mean, Peter was kind of a mess, right? He, they're, on the, they're on the top of transfiguration. Peter's like, hey, let's build a house. He's like, what? He, Peter's like, I'm not going to let this happen. Get behind me, Satan. Peter was, you know, mo Jesus was like, hey, calm down, Peter. It's okay. We're all right, right? Very long-suffering. And it's, again, it's, it's the patience of God with us. How many of you experienced the patience of God? How many are grateful for the fact that when you did something, he didn't immediately just, here it comes, right? But that's the picture a lot of people have of God. Oh, if I step out of line, immediately punishment. If that were true, none of us would be here, right? We'd all be dead. But think about that fact. If you have any children, you understand what long-suffering is, right? Well, not that way. I wasn't meaning it that way. But how many of you have walked in, caught your kids doing something they shouldn't have done, right? And you, and you think, man, I really should probably punish them. But you just go, you know what? Okay, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to work this out. And you just kind of, listen, if you do that again, you know, there's going to be a consequence. And this is the way it's going to work. And, you know, and then sure enough, they do it again. You're like, oh, you know. But long-suffering is just, just God's heart for the lost. God doesn't desire that any should go to heaven. God's long-suffering because his end goal is that everybody that hears the gospel would come to know him. That all would be saved. And so his heart is what? To reach those that have not been reached. So he delays punishment when it, should have, it could have occurred immediately. How patient was God with the children of Israel? Talk about patient, although of course it's interesting, he was starting to skirt them over into Noah's camp there and let him take care of them. So he's... He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. He's full of long-suffering. And then it says that he is abounding in goodness and truth. I started looking at that term there, abounding in goodness and truth. The word there, abounding, is much or exceedingly great amount, plentiful. And I like this last one. It says, above our conception, abounding in truth. And, excuse me, abounding in goodness and truth. Abounding in goodness and truth. 
You know, the, the, the picture that came to my mind is that if you watch Jesus walk through the world as he lived, when he left a city, what did it look like? Were the people better or worse off when he would leave? Were there people that had been sick, had been healed? If you were lame, you walked. If you were deaf, you heard. If you had leprosy, you were cleansed. It seems to me that everywhere Christ walked, who is what God in the flesh, everywhere Christ walked, when he would walk into a city and he would do what he needed to do, what he was there for, and would leave, the people themselves would be better off than they were when, when he, before he got there. That he walked from city to city, abounding in good. And I love the verse, it says in John 21, it says 25, and it says, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's the amount of good that God did as he walked through. Now it says he was abounding in goodness, but it also says abounding in truth. And what does that mean? God came to the earth to reveal to us who God was. I love that verse that says what? God did nothing that he didn't see his father do. God said not, or Jesus did nothing he didn't see his father do. And Jesus didn't say anything that his father didn't say. So as he walked the earth, he constantly was in contact with God the Father. And he displayed who God was to those around him. And what, and what was the truth of God? That God loves you. That God has sent his son to the earth for a purpose, to die for your sins. To show you mercy, to show you grace, to show you abounding goodness and truth, to show you long-suffering. That's what God sent his son for. And that's what Christ projected when he walked through the cities he walked through. No matter your need, God is the all-becoming God. If you need grace, he becomes grace. If you need mercy, he becomes mercy. He is abounding in truth. He reveals the truth of who God is. I love this statement that I read. It says, he not only, excuse me, not only does, excuse me. He not only does good. I wanted to say God there for some reason. Missed the second O. He not only does good, but by his promise... He raises the expectation of it and binds himself to show mercy. I love that. He not only wants to do good, but by his promise to us, he raises the expectation of it and binds himself to show mercy. He was abounding in goodness and truth. Verse 7 starts off and it says, Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You know, i got to tell you, verse 7 was one of those verses that I felt like Danny and Andy decided, you know, we don't want to talk on that verse, we're going to let Scott take that one. <laughs> That's a tough verse, right? It's a lot, of, uh, a lot of going back and forth on some of the things in that verse. But I really feel like the Lord... Uh, gave me some insight into it. And uh, when it talks about, first off, it says keeping mercy for thousands. It says when he gives mercy to thousands, he still has more to give. Mercy for all generations. He never runs out. His streams of mercy are ever flowing. What, what are the word pictures that came to my mind? Um, and I actually heard somebody talk about it before, is that you ever, and it happens to us all the time at our house for some reason, we have some sprinklers that are right near the sidewalk, you know, and inevitably 
I won't see that somebody accidentally kicked the sprinkler and, and uh, you know, the, the, it's laying on the ground next to it. So I'll get up in the morning and I'll look. There's no water in this side of the yard or in this side of the front yard. And I'll, I'll look over to the left and I see this, you know, my car is completely soaking wet, even though it's dry outside. And it's like water everywhere. And I look down, the sprinkler's missing, right? So clearly, it was just a geyser, right, for about six minutes. Because that's how long I water. Don't tell anybody. Um, so it's about six minutes of water shooting straight in the air. There's a lot of damage can be done six minutes of water, water shooting in the air, right? It's a lot of water that goes out of that one sprinkler head. When you talk about streams of mercy that never quit, it's this unending flow of mercy. And it, when it talks about mercy for thousands, I, one of the commentaries said, mercy for all of those of the children of Israel, of the Jews, that God has set aside for every generation of God's people, and he still has more for everybody else. Just unending, always flowing. And I, and I just love the idea or concept of that, that wave of mercy continually flowing through my life. Because there are times in my life where I needed mercy, and a lot of it. And I can imagine each one of you have as well. The second part of that verse in 7, he says, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, it's interesting that he mentions iniquity, transgression, and sin. And it basically, is, he wants to make sure that everybody understands that there, in case you think that you've done something that isn't covered, you're, not, you're wrong. There's nothing you can do that God can't cover. There's no sin he can't forgive. There's no problem he can't restore or fix. That when we talk about forgiving transgressions, he forgives all sorts of offenses. They are pardoned by his mercy and grace. And that he constantly looks for those to come to him. If you come to him and you repent, what? He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And here's the key as well, is what? Is that we must all know and understand that without Christ in our life, we are doomed for our sins, right? For all have fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then we get to this particular passage where it says, by no means clearing the guilty. When you start talking about what that really means when he means no means clearing the guilty. It talks about the fact that God will not turn a blind eye to those who continue in sin. That God will not look at those that are sinning and let them get away with it. He may be long suffering. It may look like he's letting them get away with it, but he doesn't. He doesn't clear the guilty, but the other aspect of that, based on that, what that word means is that he's also not going to take you down so far that you can't be restored. You see, the word clear, clearing the guilty, or clear, yeah, clearing the guilty, it's basically saying, look, God is going to punish the sinful. If you're living in sin, if you're constantly sinning, if you're not asking for forgiveness, you, there's a punishment. There's consequences to it, right? Absolutely consequences to it. But he's not, and he's going he's gonna to bring punishment. He's going to bring some form of discipline into your life for sin. No doubt about it. But he's not going to completely wipe, wipe you off the face of the earth either. He's going to give you an opportunity for restoration, even after he disciplines, even after he brings corrections. Correction, because that's the heart of who he is. 
So by no means clearing the guilty, he's not going to turn a blind eye. He's a just God, and when we sin, there are consequences. I read the verse earlier, it's Psalm 103, it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. One of the, one of the commentaries, what I like the way they wrote it, it said, He does not proceed to the greatest extremity till there be no remedy. So he doesn't go that far that we can't be restored. The next portion says that what? He visits the sins of the father to what? The children's children in the third and fourth generation. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were the first parents, right? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what happened to every other human being that was born for eternity? Born in sin. So for all born in sin from day one, right, Adam and Eve, what does that mean for our prospects of getting to heaven? If God hadn't sent his son to die, what would have happened to all of us? They'd go to hell, right? The reality of what we're talking about is that when Adam and Eve sinned, sin transgressed into every child that was born from that moment on. I think it was Job that said, I was conceived in iniquity, right? Conceived in iniquity. Meaning what? That he was sinful from the moment he was born. When you start talking about that, what you begin to realize is every one of us is different, right? So each one of us has a, a, um, a tendency or a, a, I had the wrong word I'm thinking for. I, I'm going to say it wrong, so I'm not going to say it. A propensity towards something, right? So what... What my weakness is and the thing that the enemy uses for me is probably different than what the enemy uses for you. So each one of us has a, a propensity towards some form of sin in our life when we were born, when we were younger, before we received Christ in our life, right? That propensity may still remain as you get older, but when you get saved, God removes that and he begins begin to grow and mature and that, that begins to dissipate in your life, right? Because as God grows inside of you, you no longer hunger for the things you used to hunger for. Right? That's the reality of, of what salvation means and, and, and growth and, and sanctification. But the reality of it is, is that we all inherited some form or some, something that was going to take us down a, a particular direction. We each inherit special tendencies for this or that, some sort of evil or misconduct from our forefathers. The knowledge that their sins will put their children at a disadvantage is meant to check them in their evil courses more than anything else. So what it's saying is, in, in this commentary I read, he's basically saying that, look, the idea or the concept that, for example, if a man and a wife get married and they have a child, and then they get a divorce, there is an effect, is there not? If, if a man goes out and robs a bank, he's, he, and he's got a wife and a, and a son or a daughter, when he robs the bank and he gets thrown in jail for 20 years, there's, there's an effect, right? So... There's a natural byproduct in, in the world we live in that will, that will translate to the next generation. But here's the beauty of God. It doesn't mean that you're stuck in that place. It doesn't mean that once you repent, whether it's the father or the child, or once that child who fights through whatever difficulties he's encountering because of the acts of his father or mother, right? Any way you look at it. That child still has an opportunity to hear God's voice. That child still has an opportunity to receive Christ as his Savior. It doesn't mean that that child is automatically going to continue to live that way. And if he does, God still goes after them, right? He pursues them. The penalty that the child has isn't final or irreversible. Ir irreversible. 
under whatever disadvantages they were born. They can struggle and fight against it and turn it around. But I love this aspect of it as well. Ezekiel 18.20 makes it very clear. This is the amplified version. It says, the person who sins is the one that will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the sin of the father, nor will the father bear the punishment for the sin of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be on himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be on himself. You see, what's that saying in Ezekiel is what? Is that that child has an opportunity to receive Christ and live free from everything that his parent did. It's not going to automatically take him away and destroy him or her. That's not the way God works. Think about what all the other things we were just talking about. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. He's abundant in goodness and truth. That's who God is. And as he's talking about it, he's saying, look, I can't stop the fact that what? Sin transfers because when you're born, you're born in sin no matter who you are. And I can't transfer the fact that if a parent chooses to live a certain way, there are going to be ramifications for that person. There is. And that's a sad thing, but we live in a fallen world. But we also have a God who is greater. We also have a God who what? Who will go after that child and give him an opportunity. And if that child decides to turn his life over to God, he can walk. He can live a life just like everybody else. And the example that I know the most is my mom, who's both, both of her parents were alcoholics. She had a choice as a child to live for God or not live for God. And what did she choose? She chose to live for God. As a result, my mom's life has been truly blessed because of what God did for her when she was a little child. Does that mean he'll only do it for her? Of course not. I have my own sins in my own life. All of my children have a choice who they're going to live for. I, I did some things that I'm not proud of. Every one of us in here probably has. But the reality of it is their walk is their own and they have to make a decision who they're going to serve. But God is gracious and he's merciful and he's long-suffering and he's abundant in goodness and truth. So I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of encouragement and a lot of excitement about the fact that he is good to us. In verse 8, you have a short verse where it says, So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I love that. Two things that really stick out, and there's not a lot of verses, words in that verse, but I, I love the fact that the minute... If you follow the conversation, right, he, he's, he's just had this dialogue with, with God in, verse, in chapter 33. He's pleading with the people. He's asking to see his presence, which, by the way, you got to think that was a pretty big ask by Moses, right? I mean, he, he gets one, and he says, okay, I'll send my presence. Oh, okay. And then the next one, yeah, okay, you want to be separate? You want to, I've forgiven you. Okay, I'll do that for you as well. And then the third one was, hey, God, how about show me your presence? I mean, he was going for the trifecta, right? Then you get into this, and as he hears what God's name is, as he hears how God reveals who he is to him, what does Moses recognize? Okay, I've just pleaded for all these people. God's going to write the Ten Commandments down. He said his presence is going to go. He's winning everything, everything he asks for. But he recognizes what he's about to ask for. So what does he do? He falls on his face before God and he worships. I love that. I love that for two reasons. One, when you fall on your face, you bow your head, it's a posture of humility. It's a posture of respect. 
When you worship, it's a posture of, I'm acknowledging that you are above me and I am below you. You are my God, but I am your people. And then he goes into to, to verse 9, and he says this, Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, if I have found grace in your sight, God, if, if you're willing to give me what I don't deserve, if I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquities and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. He asks him to pardon his iniquity, and it, you know, if you read 10 through 25, he doesn't ever come back and say, yes, I'll do it. But if you, if you flip the, the Bible over to Numbers chapter 14, and I'm just going to read it because I didn't tell Pat to, to, to look that up, so don't blame him, blame me. It says this, And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering, abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Does that sound familiar? This is Numbers chapter 14. Right? He, what, does, what does Moses do? He repeats the same thing. What does he repeat? Exactly what God said he was going to do. And then he says in verse 19, Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. You know what I love about Moses? Is he began to realize, if I take what God says and I use it, it's going to work to my advantage. If I pray what he's told me, if I remind him of his words, that what? God is going to is going to is going to listen. He's going to hear my prayer. So they get pardoned. In verse nine, where it says, "Take us as our uh, take us as your inheritance." I want you to think about that for a second, because you really think about it. And, and look, we all understand what Christ did and how He saw dying on the cross as what worth it for all of what He was going to gain, all the souls that were going to come to Christ. When you think about this particular verse, take us as your inheritance, Moses is saying, which is probably why he's on his face worshiping, hey God, these people that you wanted to pan off on me a couple verses ago, you know, we want you to take us as your inheritance. But if you look in, in Peter, what Peter's, I mean, excuse me, what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? You see, God and Christ, they put value on your life. They put so much value that when Moses asks to take them as his inheritance, he does it. That when Christ came and died for us, it was why? That we, he would recognize it. What? Take glory in the fact that we are your inheritance. That our souls are your inheritance. Psalm 94, 14 says this, For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. We need to truly understand the value that God places on each one of us. That he sent his son to die for us. And that we really understand who he is. You see, God is faithful to us in every circumstance. 
God shows up when we need him in every circumstance. He provides. It's not always the way we want it to look or how it's going to look, but God is faithful to us. He loves us. He never forsakes us. As we end here this morning, the question I wanted to ask is, when you hear the names of God, do you see God that way? Do you see him as merciful? Do you see him as gracious? Do you see him as long-suffering? Do you see him as abundance in goodness and truth? Do you see the fact that what? Sorry. That he keeps mercy for thousands. That he forgives your iniquity and your sins. Is that how you envision God? Because the reality of it is if you don't, you're not seeing the true God that we serve in the Bible. You're not seeing the God that he declared himself to be. In the midst of giving the law, he said, no, Moses, the law is the law and the law is necessary, but this is who I really am. And what I want from you is relationship. I want those to know I love them. I'm here because I love them. And I'm giving them the law because I love them. But I'm going to show them grace and mercy and long-suffering and kindness. However you see God is going to determine how you live your life. How you see God is going to determine how you respond in trials. How you see God is going to determine your attitude towards him when something doesn't go the way you want it to. See, the way you see God is going to shape a lot of, of what you do and act, how you do and act, the things that you respond to or should, and, and shouldn't respond to. Because the reality of it is, if we see God as merciful and gracious, then when we do something wrong, we wouldn't spend the next three days trying to get our lives right so that we can go back and pray again. Because we would realize what? God is long-suffering. He's patient. He wants me to come back immediately. Don't, don't take three days. Take three minutes. Go back and say, God, I'm sorry for whatever it is that I've done. My encouragement to you this morning is that if you don't know Jesus Christ... Today's the day. I would encourage you to ask the Lord into your heart today. Because there's only one way to heaven. God sent his son to die on the cross so that he could forgive you of your sins and bring you eternal life. If you know Christ and you're serving him with all your heart, then continue doing that. I hope this morning challenged you a little bit on your view of God. I hope this morning challenged you to see that God is bigger than maybe sometimes the things that we see. This particular passage and the, is a difficult passage in some regards. But I also believe that the more we dig in and the more we learn who he is, the more we truly understand God, the better we are when it comes to respond to things that give us difficulties. Because we know in our heart what God is. We have his word that shows us how he responds how he treats us, what he's done for us. Look at Moses. Look at what he was able to experience because he wanted more of God. I think that's the last thing I would mention to you this morning. Is that if you feel good with where you're at with God, I wouldn't. No matter how good you think you are, there's always more goodness that God has. If you're not pursuing to learn more, to gain more, to experience more, there's something wrong. Read the word of God. Find God's heart for you. Find the desire. Ask him for more desire. Dig deeper in his word. 
Because as you do that, it will stoke the fire inside of you. When you, I, I remember many years when I was younger, I would like, man, reading the Bible sometimes is just a chore, right? I mean, it's, I'd struggle with it. And then it was like, okay, God, you know what? I really want to read. So I would start to read and I'd say, okay, God, this is what I want to do. I, I want to continue to read. God, build that hunger in me. Increase that desire for me to read and pray and spend time in your presence. And sure enough, God just continued to build and it continued to grow. I think it's Timothy who says what? Fan the, fan the flame inside of you, right? Fan the flame inside of you. Ask the Holy Spirit to fan the flame inside of you that you would love him more, serve him more, desire more of God in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word and the truth that it brings. And God, I don't know if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, but I would ask right now that if anybody here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've never asked him into your heart, I would ask that you would raise your hand if you want to ask him into your heart today. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, just raise your hand. If you've known him and you're backslidden and you want to re-up for him and re-serve him, you can, you can raise your hand as well. Anybody? God, we thank you. We thank you that you're here and you're amongst us. Lord, I ask a blessing over each person in this room today, that, Father, as they go about their day, that this word would permeate in their minds. It would marinate inside of their minds, God, that they would hear your voice speak to them. And, God, I ask that we would recognize you as the God of mercy and grace. That, Lord, that we would look to you in circumstances, understanding who you are to us. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to each one of us more. That we would become deeper in knowledge of who you are. That we would become more entwined with you, Lord God, in every aspect of our life. We thank you for this day. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 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 God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. Have a great day.